Salutations, one and all. This is Death of a Thousand Cuts. I hope you are well. I hope you're happy. I hope things are going. I hope you're happy. Sounds a bit. <laughs> sound sounds a bit sarcastic and uh, it sounded a little bit passive aggressive. I hope you're happy. This is Death of a Thousand Cuts. I hope you're happy. But, I mean, I do hope you're happy. Of course, I do. That would that would make me happy. So I didn't mean to sound as if I was having a go. <laughs> Let's start again, shall we? Hello. This is an episode where I chat to the writer and performer, Molly Naylor. We talk about her comedy drama that she did, wrote for Sky, uh, After Hours. We talk about her work as a performer and her stuff she's done as a playwright. We talk about her experience running a night for people who um, a true stories night where people get to go on stage and talk about something that really happened to them without notes people who aren't necessarily performers just an anecdote from their life and she has some really really good insights actually on what works what makes a good story like this is what i think i'm really happy with today's episode because actually we it ended up marrying two elements that aren't always easy to put together right which is that I really enjoyed recording it and just got to talk about stuff that really interested me and we really get a sense of you're you know, going to get to know Molly and how she got where she is and she's going to talk through her career such as it is and, and you know the different elements that have come together and the path she's followed and what she's wanted at different stages in her life so there's, there's intentionally autobiographical part of it which I think is really really useful to hear the reality of someone making a career in a very successful career in the creative arts but what that looks like and not always having uh, or sometimes changing direction and how that can be okay I think that's really useful but also we just get down to fundamentals and Molly talks a bit about some sort of immensely practical meat and potato stuff to do with what makes a good story if you you know want to write something autobiographical how would what's a good way of doing that and then those lessons from a good anecdote like spread into all media of storytelling so that's really really useful we talk a little bit about ideas of vulnerability and this idea of being self-indulgent or pretentious giving yourself permission stuff that i think is although sometimes it's got an odium about it because they sound like you know artisty so sort of lovey things to talk about by far the biggest block i see to writers achieving what they could writing that piece of work doing the work and the practice they need to get better is a psychological blocks not tech technical blocks technique is not that difficult to learn being able to continue in the face of being a human being alive in the world with actual life happening to you all around you you know and molly talks about that as well and talks about having been in the seven seven bombings in 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 london how she sort of took that and applied that to her first stage show this idea of just being okay or checking in on yourself it's funny how her go-to is like oh, don't be self-indulgent don't think about your own emotional life so we talk about that and I think we have a good chat. I think you're going to 
think you're going to dig this episode. It's certainly like this podcast is always me about me kind of scratching my own itches and going to the places that interest me. And I really wanted to speak to Molly just because she's just like a really good, no nonsense but compassionate person uh, who's just written a lot of great stuff that connects with people. And so I just think there's never like, so they've got the combo of someone being like a skilled artist and then being able to talk and reflect on themselves would be funny. And I just think that's always going to be amazing. So um, if you enjoy her work and you listen to this and go, oh, I'd really like to read something by her. Of course, I'll have links in the show notes and on my website, sinclairpoet.co.uk. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast or indeed me, because I'm going to pay all sorts of boring things like uh, podcast hosting costs on SoundCloud and hosting costs on my website. And of course, it takes me ages to put these things together. Although I love it. I do love it. I'm not complaining. But if you'd like to help me um, cover the costs and keep the lights on here, then you can go on my website or click in the show notes and there'll be a link to my coffee page. It says like buy me a coffee or something. You can go there and um, drop me a few spondles and that will help me out. And it's very much appreciated. And thank you ever so much to all of you who've done that. Or... As I've saying, a really, really, really handy thing that I will shower blessings upon you for. Um, although you have my blessings already, but um, they will be redoubled and um, more fruitful than ever before. Is I've, I'm trying to rally and trying to harness the power of this podcast for 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 personal gain. Right? Um, I'd really love it if you um, pre-ordered my forthcoming novel. The Ice House. It's going to be super chill, and a pun intended. And I've I've mentioned this before, but we I figured out that having spoken to someone in publishing that basically if a bunch of people pre-order it, all those pre-orders get counted in the first week of sales. And to get into the bestseller charts in the UK, probably need to do one thousand five hundred sales in the first week. And that can include all the people who pre-ordered. Now, that would mean one in four people who listen of a single week um, pre-ordering. Can we do it? <laughs> well, uh, I'm certainly going to try. Um, and I thought I might, you know, uh, give shout outs to anyone who does. So if you do pre-order it, let me know and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast and we can count together how close i am we're using the hashtag a couple of people started using the hashtag roads to 1500 which i love so and that makes it sound like an exciting kind of like group enterprise rather than just me trying to me trying to create a career out of harnessing your um the your good your rapidly i imagine shrinking goodwill so i want to thank uh uh, uh, I mean, I'm taking it on faith. No, I'm not asking you to send me receipts or something. So maybe people are glory hunters here. But listen, we can and we can count together, right? We'll know when we've hit 1,500 or how incredibly far we have to go. And any support with this, whether it's you getting one, getting one for somebody you love, or spreading the word of um, my perhaps impossible odyssey, that would be fantastic. But in any case, um, thank you so much to John Rowan who says, "Yep, I ordered mine." That's one. Um, thank you to uh, to Dr. Cyber, who uh, says I pre-ordered mine along with my copy of The Honours. Can't wait to read them. Bless you. Thank you so much. Um, 
Uh, Fee Cooper says, ordered it yesterday after I heard you read the first page on the podcast. I love the honours and can't read, wait to read more of Delphine's story. Thank you so much, Fee. Um, and Bill Bradbury says, uh, I pre-ordered mine and have it on good authority that I'm getting the honours for Christmas. Thank you so much, Bill. Um, and uh, Phyllis D says, fuck it, you made me pull the trigger on the pre-order. I've had sat in a background tab for over a week, so it's done at least something. Thank you, Philip. That is one, two, three, four, five. Five pre-orders on the road to 1,500. The longest journey begins with a single step. Thank you. Can you add to that number? I'll put a link in the show notes. Please, please, please pre-order the Ice House and let's see if we can we can make this obscure struggling author a bestseller in the UK. It's the maths is it, the maths is possible. The maths is possible. Just all about those pre-orders. Right. I'm not going to keep you any longer. I really really hope you enjoyed today's episode and look after yourselves guys. It's coming up to Christmas. It depends on when you're listening to this. But no it can be a tricky time for some people. Uh and it's certainly a time when we have some opportunities to reflect i hope you just have a lovely time i hope you get to do some reading and just know that um you're just worthwhile and valuable and awesome and right because you enjoy it not because you feel it will make you more valuable or anything like that you're already wonderfully valuable people okay here is me chatting to molly neighbor Hello, welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a podcast for writers, for readers and for anyone who loves stories or anyone who's just like into stories. You don't have to love them. You're, you, I'm not like testing how your commitment is by your strength of feeling towards them. If you're just story curious, that is absolutely fine as well. Or if you just are nosy about how writers do their thing or how they don't do their thing, as the case may be, then welcome. You're in my gang. You're in our gang. Today... I am, yeah, and I always say, I start every episode by going, oh, today I'm really excited. And um, at some stage you're going to start calling bullshit on me. Um, but I am excited today. I'm really, um, more than that, I'm delighted and enthusiastic because um, I have got uh, my friend and the writer in multiple mediums, uh, Molly Naylor. Hello, Molly. How are Hello. you? Hello. <laughs> that was such an exciting introduction it's because i'm excited i'm excited to chat to you and i'm genuine genuinely i'm not it's not a put on um I'm just fractionally nervous <laughs> and so it's like a big sort of blurge of energy at the beginning and then i can kind of drop down into this slightly more sedate pace where we can talk about writing and because i'm eager to i'm e- eager for you to feel engaged as well well i'm happy to be here because it's nice to have the 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 sort of excuse to talk about this stuff isn't it because i try not to talk about it in uh, in in the real world because i think it's boring potentially in the pub i'm more sort of aware that if there's lots of people around sometimes the writer or the performer gets a bit more airtime because everyone assumes they're more interesting than uh, and it's it's not true and also feels really indulgent so this feels like a lovely kind of uh, opportunity to be indulgent and that's 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 what this is for it's we're allowed right <laughs> yeah you you definitely are this is like our it's a t- it's, we're at that time of year now where there's been have you noticed like an increasing an increasing popularity of Christmas parties for people who don't have a workplace, like uh, freelancers. I feel like I've seen this over the last Tim, few years. Tim, I'm going to one tomorrow. Oh my God. Like I'm, I, and I like it, but at the same time, 
it, no one's paying for it because the office isn't paying and oh, yeah, <laughs> you've got to do all the... the admin and it's like it's actually really annoying i think not having one is probably better than having four that you have to self-fund <laughs> i forgot that that's what the office party rate is is that right. they fork out for it yeah they they fork out and that's why it's sort of that's why that's why it's like you're allowed to be a bit annoyed about it it's like oh this thing i've got to do and now not only do i have to pay but i have to be happy about it i don't even get to be kind of like hilariously cynical i just have to go and i have to pay and yeah are you are you going to some i'm not getting to i'm not going to any oh money i don't go out anymore i'm like really uh i went out last night i went out and watched a movie and it's the first movie i've been out and watched in 2 years um, what did you it, see? I went, oh my God. I went to see a movie called My Hero Academia, Two Heroes. It is, an, I, it, I went okay. to watch anime, Molly. Okay. I went to watch, I went to watch ja- Japanese anime dubbed into English. Um, Was it good? This, yeah, well, so it's good. This character um, on my t-shirt that I'm showing you now doesn't necessarily work totally in the um, medium. Her name is Suyu Asui and she's, so it's a story about, a group of students who, um, in a world where 80% of people have quirks, which are like superpowers. Mm. And it's about a bunch of students who are being trained to be superheroes. It is, there's nothing about it that is really original. It's exactly what you'd expect. Like teenagers, you know, going through the, their various emotional arcs. There's like the angry one. There's the kind of earnest sort of hero who wants to do really well there's the and so but it does all the tropes really well and i must admit i had such a good time molly i had an amazing time good i spent a lot of time pretending to like smart shit that actually makes me feel a bit tired and my hero academia is like it's just like i don't want to like slag it off as a guilty pleasure but it is just my like pulp that I like you know it was really really nice and there's lots of people dressed up with like their little My Hero Academia it was really nerdy it was really nerdy that's lovely I'm glad do you have like do you have a do you have something like that like a a guilty pleasure yeah I mean like I feel like this is pretty rough as like a first question no no I'm like going Molly like confess something that is well, like no, your I, safe thing and I think it's good because I I do sort of reject the premise of a guilty pleasure so I don't think I have anything that I'm ashamed of I be, I, I sort of understand the concept is like something that you wouldn't necessarily boast about like uh, and sort of cross reference but um but I do I I watch a lot of telly like a hell of a lot and I used to sort of think about that as as if it was research I think I used to kind of sanction it for myself as if I'm well I'm it's I'm a script writer so it's research and actually I what's been much nicer for me now is thinking I'm going to watch some telly that isn't research and it isn't um it, it might not feed into my work at all and it probably shouldn't so I've been watching uh, I've been absolutely caning Bojack Horseman I've actually just finished all of it um and I I mean I know that Bojack Horseman is sort of seen to be good by lots of people it's not a kind of trashy thing but it's still I've never watched animation before I've always been a bit weird about cartoons I've felt I felt like how could they speak to me on any level because I was <laughs> judgy and a baby <laughs> um but I've that's been sort of my um my safe place you know that kind of just I, going into have you seen it so there's there's an ancestral war between people who like 
between the douchebags who like Rick and Morty and the cool people who like Bojack Horseman. And who are you? I, I and I watched Rick and Morty, and it's like the uncoolest thing to like because it's just been the fandom has just turned into such knobs. Um, but I haven't got into Bojack Horseman okay. because. I feel like it's so intimidating to start at like episode one, right. but the people I know who've watched it mm. love it and have gone, oh no, it's got some, they actually like, it has some emotional gut punches is my understanding, right? Yeah, that they sometimes like, commit to like actually going, I know this is dumb and funny, but yeah. here's like a character having a, an experience. Yeah, which is, I've just not seen anything like it and I've not seen anything like it. Well, I'm not seen, I've seen any like, Drama is like that a lot, but it's <laughs> yeah, but not like but an not, animated I horse. Can't see where it's a, ho- a man's body with a horse's head, and I love. I just I love the world. The world building's amazing because some there are animals and there are people, and there's there's no rules. I mean, there there probably are internal rules, but there's no obvious rules to why some animals speak, why why some don't, why some. Do you know what I mean? And so it's just lovely, and it's colourful, and it's gorgeous. And when I watch that, I I'm a little bit engaged with the politics of the world because they sort of you know it's, it's quite it's very contemporary um but it's also because of because it's a cartoon i'm not i feel like it's asking less of me and i i i just feel i just like the yeah the, the way it looks and i really really so i want i want to come back to this but i want to like cycle around first and yeah. just ask a bit about you because i think what you're talking about there is something I, I really want to talk to you so much about characters and scripts and 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 I think like you were kind of like moving on to like talking about like vo- the voice or tone yeah. of a show and I'd love to pick your brains about that. But before we do, is it all right if I just ask you a little bit about where you where you come from, like how you got here? I mean, I know literally you walked around my house, but I you did. know like really ha- uh, very quickly and, and sweatily. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's that kind of weather where you'll be it, it's too wet to not wear a coat. Yeah. If you wear a coat, you'll feel gross yeah, exactly. after five minutes of walking. <laughs> so can you, would you, is it okay? I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm asking kind of is where you began and where you first began to kind of engage with stories. Great. Well, I, I mean, it's, so, so I bet you get everyone saying, I've always loved stories as a child. Um, and so I spoke, but I, and I have. I think anyone sat here would say that but I think for me when I was a kid I engaged with stories in a very different way that I engage with them now they were 100% my safety comfort blanket and I know I just said that about Bojack but but generally now stories isn't are my job and I think about them in quite a sort of deep and sometimes joyless way whereas when I was a kid it was it was literally it was just an escape it was like I'm gonna go upstairs and I'm gonna read the babysitter's club book books and um I so what are the babysitter club so the babysitter club books are about this gang of girls who are babysitters they're teenagers and they've set up a business a babysitting business and it's all about the different girls struggles in their lives and they all they all they all have different personalities they're different things and um and it's lovely because there are so many and it's just that comfort if you can go into that world and so for me for so long stories were about escape and about hiding and about living or feeling someone else's life um and even now there is an element where i like with i was saying with bojack like kind of tap into that 
rather than like I I often feel quite strange about I often feel quite self-conscious about like the things I read now like I don't feel like I read as much academic work or academic texts or kind of like I, I feel like I, there's still a part of me that goes into that comfort place with stories but that was where that was probably because that's how I came into stories and then and then I sort of started writing very early poetry and stories and everything. it was always like you know I'd always like win the creative writing prize in yeah. school and that was that was that was, that was like me that. as well it's like so weird because when I talk to people because at the time you are like literally especially you grew up in like a small yeah in Cornwall it's in small Cornwall in small Cornwall yeah in just a little town but like yeah. presumably I don't know like were there lots of people around you who wrote no not at all uh so it was yeah it, I'd never thought about that actually but yeah it was quite a lonely thing but then also not a lonely thing because you're creating characters and people and friends so you're sort of populating your life it's like an antidote to loneliness right 100 percent. and it's i remember like it would be also my uh way of i had insomnia as a kid a lot i, I was really yeah from I, what sort of age really young and i think a lot of it was just anxiety and fear i was very afraid a lot of the time I don't quite know why but I was, and I was. I, I think I struggled in school, so I was. All, you know, I was just always worrying. Was it like so, social anxiety or fears of the future? I or? think social anxiety, just constant sort of hamster wheel thoughts, which I still still, still have a lot now. Just that thing of almost like your brain is projecting a series of short films about hypothetical awful situations to you curated by your worst enemies that's sort of still happens now but happens now like once every six months i'll wake up and there'll be a 4am film festival um, <laughs> <laughs> straight from falmouth school or whatever but then it was every night it was every, do you know what i mean it was every night it was it was what if this happens what if this happens what if this happens in assembly what if this girl from school doesn't like me and so i was always awake and so a way i would sort of self soothe i guess would be to make up stories and to um and and when i was making them i, I was really sort of planning them as big novels do you know what i mean they were they were big stories that and they were sort of i, I think even from an early age i was thinking i'm oh, when i grow up i want to be a writer and this is what i'm going to do so i was almost sort of practicing that and just but but really, it was it was it was a way of assuaging my great fear of every other human being who lived. <laughs> that sounds really. I did not mean to be so heavy. Oh, so no, sick. no, I never I... thought about it before. Actually, no, it's really it's really interesting because I suffer quite badly from as you, as you know, and as anybody who moves within my sort of 10 meters of me <laughs> at any stage i'm like an annoying christian but for anxiety i just go oh, did i tell you that i suffer from anxiety but like i didn't really have it as a kid as i remember it's only mm. is it is like a learned thing and it seems to you that it was like with you and you weren't and it wasn't really clear to you there wasn't like there wasn't like a point where you went from being sort of happy-go-lucky to suddenly having this anxiety it was just was it just something that was with you all, all that time I think so I don't want to get too sort of pop psychology about about it um I mean who knows early years connections my relationship with my family like loads of stuff um but not but yeah no 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 point no event no sort of tangible trauma that created that I just remember yeah always being awake I just remember lying awake looking like looking at the wall you know looking at the bobbly wallpaper or looking at the slats on my bunk bed and just thinking uh thinking up stories and 
and also I had loads of um, Sylvanian families. They, they were sort of my toys as a kid, so I would sort of make up plays with them. That was my sort of, probably when it turned more into script rather than prose fiction <laughs> at the age of eight. Um, and so I think, it, yeah, I've just always had that sort of um, slightly directorial uh, st- sort of dramaturgical relationship with sort of loads of aspects of my life. Was I just because anxiety in a way is compulsive story making up in right like something has to go wrong for there to be a story mm. and so you're there and your brain is going what happens if tomorrow in school this girl is mean to me what happens if something bad happens in assembly well like all of those are kind of like they're all like quite good premises but I remember you know Colin Dexter saying uh, when he was asked how he came up with like scripts for Morse, and he's just like, think of an everyday thing, yeah, and think of a way it could go wrong. That's so funny mom... when you said that because I thought you were talking about. I thought Colin Dexter was like a boy in your school, <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, that was when Colin Dexter said this thing to me. <laughs> I was like, hang on, it does sound like it does so sound like the name of. I love names from school. I oh, love me like, too. Full names from schools oh. always sound really funny, right? So good, Michael Rollison, Richard Petchy. Ooh. <laughs> They're not. They're, they're, they're human beings who deserve love and respect, but yeah. it's funny. <laughs> I think there's something about maybe because we're both from like the West Country as well. I think there's a certain there's a certain there's a certain heft to certain uh, yeah, local names definitely. that just work for me. But were the stories that you were writing? Um, I'm not. You know, I'm not trying to sort of ask you to sort of, and like you said, I'm not asking for like too much pop psychology or, or uh, confabulation. But mm. were the stories you were creating were they? Because some people I know, when I spoke to Alexander Gordon-Smith, he talks about, like, he, he was dealing with his anxiety by writing, like, even more horribly anxious things where, like, you, zombies are trying to kill... Everyone in the world is trying to kill you from oh, him just yeah. feeling mild. So were your... Are the stories that you were drawn to, were they... Because it sounds like when you talk about the babysitters clubs, that actually those stories are quite comforting ones and I'm wondering whether you were draw- naturally drawn to writing stories that were like you the girl goes to school and she gets murdered by her friends mm. always or were they sort of slightly more affirming ones I think they were affirming they were definitely sort of within the world that I was in you know I wasn't there were no snakes in out of space or anything like that it was definitely set within the world that I was dealing with but that probably was more about my lack of range than anything else I don't know I think about that a lot like I think I do I I often I still now you know I write about people sibling relationships I don't you know I'm not saying that that's not rangy but there's yeah my interests are have always been in people and relationships and those like subtle dynamics and I suppose it's interesting isn't it to think what was I writing those stories because I was obsessed with those dynamics in real life or was I obsessed with those dynamics in real life because I was writing those stories like do you know what I mean what yeah, I, I find I like I'm, I'm I mean I it's I think it's interesting the kind of things that writers get pulled into and I think it's I think especially like genre writers like me definitely in a kind of drop into this defensive posture where they go oh like other people just can't break through the boundaries and write about weird shit but like actually a lot of genre writers by the fact that they're genre writers are just in another they're just in another I'm just in another silo right like I write about weird shit but I 
I'd be actually like the word I'm looking for is I'd be terrified to write about just a domestic situation. I don't feel like I'd have have the chops to do it. Is that because you don't think it would be interesting enough? I don't think I would make it interesting. I don't think I would find the thing in it. That's the thing is I just can't. For me, I'm there's that. I suppose you know if you want to see it as a kind of uh, as a kind of fallback or something, I'm relying on. But like I'm just like well, okay, so one of them is okay so they've just got like their dad died and um they've taken his brain and they've grafted it onto a monkey mm. um that lives with them <laughs> and it's just really like that that would be like the domestic situation and i would i think it would it would stumble upon relatable family dynamics you know like a family member getting old a family member becoming an embarrassment it would stumble across those things by way of sort of metaphor yeah but i would really struggle just going i'm just gonna write a story in which the dad's a bit of an embarrassment yeah or even like the first bit of that story you know the dad died and the two people left behind have to deal with it like that's enough but you wouldn't feel like that was enough you'd have to grab the brain onto the monkey uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true it's really true i tell you and i don't i genuinely don't know why um so can i we talk about like when you first that i'm kind of looking for it's a big transition i know from Mm. writing as a child to when you first started writing well how did how did you sort of progress from there yeah great well i I so then I got into acting I got into drama and I got into um which which was a sort of another type of storytelling it was still storytelling it felt like storytelling but it also just felt like playing and it felt fun and and I started to actually enjoy life a bit like that's where I found joy you know because I found I didn't I sort of for whatever reason wasn't finding that much joy at home or kind of in my some of my relationships so that was a place for me for joy and so I kind of that carried on all throughout school and A levels, and love just love drama, getting involved with all all the kind of parts of that that I could. And then I did drama at university, and that's when it sort of changed because um, it was a really great course, Middlesex University, and it was very interdisciplinary. So you do um, you just do lots of collaborations, and you do directing and stand up comedy and all these different modules. But I soon and I was doing lots of acting because I wanted to be an actor, and then I realized sort of halfway through the degree that the acting wasn't um wasn't storytelling really it was just telling someone else's story so obviously a form of storytelling but it was a bit too far removed for me and I was like no I want to be controlling this a bit more I want to have I I don't think this is very good story like or, or this is a fine story but it's not the story I want to tell so I mean how many times can you do like the doll's house and be like yeah that's great but I've got an idea that I can't really transpose onto the, the doll's house with my acting, with my brilliant acting. Um, so I started doing some script modules and some directing modules. And I was like, oh, this is where the story guys are. Like, this is where I get to call the shots and and create the world rather so than just embody it. Was there, I mean, was there literally a moment where you were like, you were, you were like doing Ibsen's lines <laughs> and just went and like looked around <laughs> and just had like a moment like that moment of like intense self-knowledge where you're like this I don't I don't like it no I'll tell you what it was I think it was just like doing a play with a bunch of people because you know you've got to collaborate this like big collaboration everyone has to have an equal part and everyone's got to do this we were doing Rhinoceros by UNESCO and it was 
it was great. And you but... literally, and you literally, as if to like mirror <laughs> yeah. the realization of the play, you looked around and this went, "I won't nonsense. capitulate." <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's just what you would have wanted. But I'm able know. to participate in this in this conversation, Molly. Do you know why? Because you've named two of the only plays I've ever seen in my life. It, you I, must if be you delighted. went basically, you can do Duchess of Malfi, and then I'm tapped out, right? <laughs> but I saw in 2007 at the Royal at the at the uh, in London. I saw a uh, young uh, male actor by the name of. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch. Hello, sir. Uh, <laughs> in uh, in Eugene uh, in, in, in Eugene Ionesco's Rhinoceros, and so that's why I know it. And Lovely. so I was like, I'm just going to confess now that is my entire theatre knowledge. But well, I was I'll so keep, pleased you were like that's just amazing. skimming. I'll just keep dropping the references, and then and we'll see the difference when you don't know. Just silence. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. Oh yeah, I think I remember. I, I, read, that. I, I think I read half of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm desperately trying not to go along with people now when they ask me. Right. Completely f- straight up. Do you um, do you know this thing? Because for ages I've tried to please people by going. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, it's just obvious I don't. And, but, and why? So, and why are we doing it? Because I want to be, because I imagine that I just, because I'm judging, I imagine that people are going to be really judging me. And of course they're not. They're, they're not like, love it. They love, they love being smarter than someone else and knowing something. Yeah. Right? We all do. We all do. Um, So you, you were doing Rhinoceros and, and what happened? Actors are the worst. Okay. <laughs> though that is not true. That is not true. I love actors. I love drama guys. But the, the actors in this play, like they didn't want to do any work. They were lazy, and, and, and I found that consistently, actually, over that degree, that the people who were most into acting were just drinking, were just drinking in the pub and, like, getting off with each other, and, like, they didn't actually want to do any work, and I found that very frustrating, and I felt, I, I felt myself much more aligned to other people who were doing other modules, and I was like, I don't know what that's about. I don't know if that's distinct to that particular experience. There's I a ha- definite culture around acting. Well, I think... Yeah, that you you have to be okay being bored for ages. You have to be okay. You know, you're on a film set. You're not doing much for a long time. And you have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with, you know, like that 10 minutes of you being the star. And you have to be okay with being the star. You have to be okay with people looking at you. And, you know, there are just certain things that have to come together to be an actor that I I just think I didn't really have and or want. And so... So then I switched up some modules and the next semester I was like, yeah, I think I might be not done with this, but just, and then, but then also I did stand up comedy. I started doing stand up comedy and, uh, and I felt like, oh, this is good because I do get to be on stage and have that sort of in- interesting interaction with the audience that I do really did really, or, or was always really fascinated by, but I'm myself and I'm writing. And so, you know, I, maybe I can kind of find a way to do it all, but not be doing Ibsen. It's weird, isn't it? Because you kind of, you don't, so many jobs, you really have no idea what they're going to be like until you're quite far down the path of oh, going exactly. towards them, right? Exactly. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. And like, the, so many of the decisions we make are we're forced to make when we're 18 or 21 or at certain points in our lives when we're idiots. And then, like you say, you have to do it for ages and then you find out. And, and when And when you've been spent your whole life sort of hang around in the arse end of nowhere I'm you know I'm talking about me but maybe you know how that feels yeah. and 
when creative people have been you, you when they've been like few and far between and you've had to kind of like have those have to be allowed to have a conversation with someone about a book without them calling you a twat yeah. like is really special and then you suddenly go to university where all of these people are pulled together and it's no longer special and then this other kind of culture builds up it's a i feel like it can be quite if not traumatic then certainly quite disorienting it is and i think at every point in your life you think that you are older than you are or you think you think that there's more um urgency so i think even then when i was sort of 21 i you know i could have just done something else i could have gone oh this was great this wasn't for me but i felt i even then i felt too far into it and <laughs> now i'm you know i'm 36 and i definitely feel too far into it but I'm, I'm almost more likely to change career path now just because i'm more aware of these things but then i was like well no i've committed now i've committed now i've done i've spent you know i've got a student loan and i've done this so i have to i'm all in and it didn't even really occur to me that like you're allowed you you're allowed to like go and retrain as a speech therapist but i just didn't know that and uh, i mean i don't have any regrets but it's sounding like i do <laughs> it sounds like you want to be a speech Maybe therapist I, do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's but it's it's good to be I think, but I think also as you get older, maybe you can the regret. You can accept regrets maybe a bit more. Do you know what I mean? You can yeah. go, oh, maybe you would, but you well, know. you live them, don't you? You you like life is disappointing. Like I have faced some disappointments now. When 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 you're 21, it's all ahead of you, and you just think, oh well, I'm. The idea of being disappointed is almost unbearable. Like the idea that oh, I, I actually. I'm not going to get this role or I'm not going to get this published. It's sort of unbearable. Whereas it does happen in your life. And then you go, well, I'm alive. It's fine. You find other things that are more meaningful, perhaps like having a child or getting into walking. <laughs> <laughs> same level <laughs> of value. I think they are the same level of value, actually, Molly. I would I'd say they gen I know you're joking. No, but, but you, I think I, they, yeah. yeah, I'm saying I don't want to undermine your child because I think walking is <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'd, I'd love a walk. <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't let me. The, the, the yesterday, she um she stood against the wall when I was trying to encourage her into the car in the car park, folded her arms, and I said, "Are we going to get in the car?" Then she said, "I'm on my way." <laughs> and I said, "I was like, you're not moving. I'm on my way." It's great. That's it was awesome. amazing. That's was what wicked. being on her way looks like. Yeah, she's, she's, she's learned that phrase. And she knows that you can just shout it at someone and then you don't have to hurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's perfect. So what happened? What was the first bit of writing you did that like reached an audience? Because you, you sort of said to me, um, you were like growing up, you were the person who would um, win that, the, the like they'd have a creative writing competition, mm. you'd, you'd win that. So you'd had some of these early like affirmations, but I, I suppose when as an adult was the, was there a first thing that you got to like stick in front of an audience? Well, well, exactly. I mean, so I wrote a, I wrote a play that was terrible um, when I was living in Cardiff uh, after university and it was really bad, but what it did do is get me a place on the creative writing MA at uh, uh, UEA. Which is Can where I ask what the play was about? It was it was quite um so I'm not gonna slag it off anymore. Bless me. It was called it was called something like Five Reasons to Kill Yourself or Ten Reasons to Kill Yourself or something like that. And it was about two people who met on a 
on a bridge and they were going to kill themselves and I was really obsessed with suicide at this point in my life and and then they kind of save each other and go on a journey I mean it's not that bad because Nick Hornby literally also wrote that story (laughs) (laughs) and he wrote a book called A Long Way Down which is um there's five people I think in his book and uh but yeah it was I, I I sort of I haven't actually read it again but um, but anyway, it was enough to kind of get me. It was. It had some potential. Clearly, it had something about it, and I never got to put it on anywhere. But I, it got me onto the MA, and then, uh, and then I spent a, a year doing a scriptwriting MA, which I loved. But at the same time, I'd never. I that you know, I'd only written that play before, and so it, it was kind of. Uh, it was a very steep learning curve, and I still didn't come out of it with it with anything that I could just go hit, go to the agent and get me an agent and or get this produce. You know, it's such a, it's so hard. What do you hard. do on a creative, like a script writing MA? I am like asking, I know it's like possibly a dumb question, but just in practical terms, like yeah. how how do you work on scripts for a year in an MA environment? Right, well, you, you sort of learn the, we was we sort of learned the craft and learn because it's you know it's a very specific way of writing and you need to learn that you need to learn the conventions of the of the form so there's a lot of that a lot of that through sort of short exercises and then there's also the like the bigger dramaturgical like structural and plot things that you got to learn so we sort of did a lot of that via short exercises and then we did a dissertation which was a feature length film for me um, which again wasn't very good but by that time I was you know I was really learning and I was also learning about the industry and. That was demoralising, though, because the in, the script industry is so... Like, you know, they just say things like, well, you know, for every script commissioned, you have to write a hundred scripts, and there's all these things Who's, that... Yeah, exactly. Like, all this shit that's just, like... The only way I got through any of that at the time with, like, creative writing was just go, oh, they don't really mean that. Or that doesn't apply to me. Because I felt like believe... I would have gone completely nuts yeah. otherwise. You have to believe it doesn't apply to you. You have to have that healthy delusion that kind of makes you think you're special and I look back now and I'm like oh no I I wasn't special but I at the time I think I did a bit think I was and I think that's okay I think you have to otherwise you wouldn't be there and you certain, certainly wouldn't be paying those fees or doing that you know having that experience because it's a hard year but I yeah I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I sort of had that slight delusion I think it really helped sort of propel me forward and just think yeah well everyone, all the shit munchers can write 100 scripts I'll write one and it'd be amazing. Or maybe three. You know, I was like, yeah, I'll write three. And like, you definitely... Pr- I don't want to talk smack about people, but definitely, like, if you're on a course, there'll probably be, like, at least one person in your group who's, like, you know you're better than, right? So there's normally, like, someone who maybe produces some things that maybe you think are a bit shit. Maybe they're just not your thing. But, like, I always feel like there's at least one person you go, well, no, they're... T- they're talking about Carl. Yeah. Carl, Carl's <laughs> going to write a hundred scripts because he's a dickhead. Yeah. But, but like that's, but he's the one who's going to soak up those odds for me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> maybe that's me. Maybe I'm just. Uh... But again, I, maybe that's the delusion. Who knows? Whatever. It, it helps you. It helps you get through it. It turned out I was Carl though. You Molly, that's everybody's Carl. Everybody's <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Someone's got to be Carl. <laughs> if you haven't identified Carl, you are it's Carl. You. There's always one Carl well, in the okay. room. <laughs> Um, so, but, so then I I finished that, and I I still wasn't uh, it wasn't sort of kicking off for me. But I I that then a really amazing thing happened where I sort of came back to poetry, and poetry had been something I'd always written for for fun. But what I found in Norwich, where I now lived, 
and still live is that there were people doing poetry out loud of, with their mouths. They were performing poetry in pubs, in clubs, and uh, you were one of them. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and it was incredible to me. And it was really exciting because it felt like, okay, so I've written poetry. That's really cool. I like performing. That's really cool. I've done a bit of comedy and I really enjoyed that. And I felt like, wow, I, that's something I could do now without writing 100 scripts, without applying without paying loads of money without auditioning I could write a poem and I could go and do it at that open mic and that's what I did and actually through doing that um it really empowered me to start thinking oh about performing again but in this like in a different way and talking about my own life and you know I felt like that that is the confluence of some of the skills that I'd kind of accidentally or not or intentionally developed over the years and and I sort of put together a set and then I and then that slowly turned into a show and like an hour-long show that was sort of made of poems um but was also a kind of play if you like it's it's so the opposite of this like process that you're staring down the barrel of as like somebody who's like writing for well for stage but especially for film where it's like you write a script you slowly like engage people and then maybe you get commissioned, you might get funding, you might do rewrites, mm. you might cast it, you might shoot it, it might get a slot and then it's going to come out like that process versus this morning I saw something on the telly, had an idea for a poem, wrote it down and I'm going to take it to the open mic tonight just to sort of see how it goes mm. like it's such a different process where you've actually got full control over from the beginning to the end of it and you get immediate feedback it is and it was it was perfect because I was still so I, was, I got to do that while I was developing my craft as a scriptwriter. so I sort of have these two things going on one of which was exactly like you said the first one just gatekeeper after gatekeeper after gatekeeper sending it off someone saying no someone liking it a bit and then all this like endless bullshit and then and then on but then what was keeping me kind of happy and engaged and creative was 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 writing poetry and or spoken word or storytelling you know it sort of morphed into I guess storytelling is the the best term for it but just a kind of thing that I did on stage and I wrote I wrote a bunch of shows that way and when you do that you know you can you can find an audience for it because you can take it to the Edinburgh Fringe which is what I did and although that's not necessarily accessible to everybody because it, it does involve some costs um, it's still possible for for some people um, and it was possible for me and that was just basically the beginning of a sort of creative professional practice because then I was sort of putting work into the world that people were coming to watch and judge and and there's definitely less few there are fewer moving pieces than like doing a tv show right like yeah. being able to get something there can i can I, would, it, would it be all right would you be able to like for people who aren't familiar with it give like a little pricey of your first show because i you did your first show around the same time that i was doing my first show as well so we ended up doing like a couple of previews together so i've got like a, re I've got a really fond memories of it but um i was wondering for people listening if you could give a little pricey of what that first yeah. show was well, it was called Whenever I Get Blown Up, I Think of You. Long title. And long title isn't in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Hyphen, long title. Um, and it was it was true story. It was autobiographical story. And it was about where, uh, being on one of the trains that got blown up on 7-7. And when I... So I'd moved to London to go to uni. I went to uni. 
and then that happened to me in the year after university so it was sort of the story of a girl me who moves to London with all these hopes and dreams has a big thing happen to her and then and then it sends her off on a new path and then she kind of puts the pieces back together so it was a kind of um you know redemptive tale of ambition and failure and uh and and what it is to kind of have expectations and have them dashed and 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 how romanticizing your life and stories can help you frame your life but also ruin it by <laughs> by kind of creating those expectations why did you want to write about it i i don't know i sort of i was preoccupied by this time that had created a lot of pain and anxiety for me but in a way i think that was actually intangible to me at that time i don't think i knew that that was happening i had severe ptsd afterwards but no one diagnosed that and no one you know i think you were on one of the trains that was blown up on seven yes exactly and and i was sort of physically fine but uh emotionally not so fine but and i think that if it happened now i think there's like mental health uh awareness is just so much better now in those year in those 10 years but at the time it was just like oh well you're fine aren't you you know you're fine you don't ever some other people had their legs blown off and you did not so you are fine and i was like well of course i am um but i wasn't really and but i think a lot of the stuff that i wasn't that had sort of a lot of like processing that trauma that i wasn't doing um did went into me somewhere else and i i think i felt like a need and a compulsion to organize my thoughts via that story and and i think it was i i at the time when i wrote it when people because people would talk about it in the press a little bit and they would say like is was this therapeutic for you and at the time i'd be like no 100 percent no because i felt like a bit of shame around that i think the idea that like i'm just writing for therapy i felt like that was a bad thing to do i don't think that now i don't agree i think it definitely was therapeutic definitely helped me and i think it's a fine practice and i think it's really positive to write about your experiences in order to feel better about them where does this i'm really interested in that and i was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit because i've had similar feelings sometimes not about your work (laughs) (laughs) just going ah yeah it's a bit you know it's just therapy stuff isn't it but you wrote that review did you (laughs) where do you think this it read like a it read like a four um where do you think this sort of feeling of shame or guilt or slight derision that comes around work that is somehow therapeutic or emotionally transformative to the to the writer god man i don't know like i suppose there's it might be seen as indulgent and we have a problem with that in this country i think don't we we think like if something's you know if you're enjoying it or if you're if you're getting something out of it then like then there's a value judgment around that maybe i don't know um i don't know it's it's where do well, I, I suppose rather than a cultural thing where do your feelings of shame come from i think that's simpler i think i just felt like um it was selfish it was too you know i shouldn't be enjoying i shouldn't be getting anything out of this um i felt sort of guilty i felt like oh you know you need to have a function in the world a purpose and 
Um, and I think on a small level, that is quite a useful thought because I do think you are doing a show for an audience and it's got to be entertaining and interesting to them. So I think a tiny bit of that is healthy. But I think I had so much that it was probably a much worse show than if I'd have been... Well, who knows? But there's a bit of me that thinks like if I had had more confidence and if I'd have just been a bit more balls out with like, yeah, this is what I'm doing this for and I have no worries about that, then it might have been a it might have been a braver show because I think I was ham I was um editing myself quite a lot because I was like, Oh, I won't say this bit because this is too personal and people don't want to hear that when actually I don't know if that's true. Um so I think yeah, I think for me just like classic Classic shame and like shame around having a voice is is I think it's an interesting, um, uh, a bit of anomalous thing that you have this. Often people who haven't felt like they've had a voice growing up or haven't felt like they deserve to be heard for whatever reasons, early years, pop psychology, whatever, are the ones who then end up needing having a need to express their voice. So you've got those two things happening at the same time. You've got that compulsion and that shame. Um, but sometimes the compulsion is just slightly bigger than the shame. And I think it was for me. I, I, I'm i really sorry if this is a twatty question. Feel free to call it out if it, it comes across I can't as wait. <laughs> Do you think it is harder for women to share those things than it is for men? They're sort of more pressure. I mean, I know that sounds like a leading question. I'm implying that there is. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm, but I don't have any lived experience of that, which is why I'm asking. No, this. thanks. It's a good question. I, I, I do think to, there is, and obviously it's different for every people and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I do think there is a tendency for women to be socialised, to be quieter and to um, be more subservient and to be more accommodating and to read the temperature in a room a little more. And I think when you have got, you've acquired you sort of accidentally acquired those skills though the skills in inverted commas like they they're the things that maybe add to the voice in your head that's like shut up don't cause a scene don't cause a fuss don't be annoying like being annoying was something that was drummed into me very early on as a kid that was like the worst thing you could possibly be is annoying so obviously trying to do a solo show where you talk about yourself and not be annoying is like quite difficult to have that voice in your head and I think a lot of girls have that growing up and I th I know a lot of boys do too and lots of different people do but it's yeah I think there's just a I think girls are just brought up differently because I remember you talking about uh, a, a show you did and I'm sorry for like opening old traumas <laughs> but, it re but I really it resonated with me so strongly when you talked about doing a show where you were doing one of your bits where you're being self-deprecating and a woman in the front row was going was like interacting with you and going hey come come on molly i think you sound like a bit of a, a bit of a fool there yeah and, and basically took that invitation of you going oh i'm being vulnerable here and i'm also showing some like mistakes i've made um and you doing that little status drop where you yeah. kind of like you invite the audience in by dropping your own status. I think that is such a scary thing to do, to do something where you're lowering your status voluntarily yeah. as a as a sort of gesture of empathy to the audience. I was wondering if you could, because she felt to me, when you told me that anecdote, she felt to me like, like an avatar of that shaming, quietening voice 
in your head. Was that your second show that she? That was my third show. The collaboration oh, yeah, with third, yeah. Ian Ross, um, the musician from Bear Suit and Mega Emotion, and Lady Die. Um, <laughs> he's a, a great man, and we made a show together. And he, and uh, yeah, so in the show, I I sort of talk about school, and I talk about um, a particular girl from school who I'd got a bit obsessed with, uh, sort of girl from my past, you know, and. Um, and yeah, and I was, tr- I was like, I thought I was, you know, doing what, what good creative writing is, which is showing, not telling, um, dem- trying to demonstrate this, this, this sense of like, I was being a bit silly and getting too obsessed with her. And I was just showing that to the audience in what I felt was a very self-aware way. And then the woman in the audience was like, uh, I think you were. I think you might have been going a bit too hard with the stalking, Molly. Like, and just kept sort of interacting. And I found it interesting on two levels. First of all, that she wasn't like seeing the subtext, but that's fine. Um, you know, maybe she's just like not reading that. But also that she felt like I'd I'd gone so low status that I'd in I'd made her feel like it was fine for her to hijack the show. Um, and and I. But if that happened now to me, I would then, I know what I would do now, because obviously I've I've thought about it a little bit (laughs) (laughs) before in the morning, (laughs) but I would, I would stop it happening. You know, I would, I would raise my status in order to to shut her up. Not, not because I wanted to bring her down, but because that was what was needed in the room. But I was such a people pleaser at that point in my life that I wanted to make her feel okay. And I chose her over me and therefore over everyone else in the room who was coming to watch the show potentially um and i think it's a really interesting thing about status because i think we never know when we're on stage what our status is really because we all probably feel like bell ends to an extent so to drop your status intentionally for a gag like is a it can be a really strong move but i think to do that effectively you sort of need to know where your status is like what how people see you and i think with women they do s- s- potentially see you as naturally lower status than a man anyway and if you're slightly awkward like I can be I think even more so and so like but then I don't know how you win because if you go too far the other way then I think you get caught arrogant I think there's so Kate Tempest is a really I think one of the things that really comes across when I see her live as opposed to like her recordings is her control of uh, status now sorry I'm not saying I should preface this by saying I'm not saying because Kate Tempest has found a way to thread the needle all 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 women should just do the same thing and there's no problem <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is what I noticed with her is she just like maps out the two extremes of like in because bet- I saw her mm. when she was like I think maybe 18 when she did uh, Latitude the first time yeah. she didn't speak at all between between poems and just these very very loud high status shouty kind of like prophet on the hill kind of Mm. like tub thumping uh political poems um two years later in between she was going she would like stop and go hi everyone tug at this kind of like collar of her uh jumper um say what and then hold out her hand and go look my hand's shaking um it's really nice to be here kind of like look down kind of like dig her toe into the carpet and then go into these powerful like these these kind of pieces that expressed rage and passion and fear and um that mapping out those two things i think 
helped the audience to get they the first time i saw her, the audience seemed a bit threatened by seeing a woman being loud and strident mm. on stage um mapping out those two things i think gave people a way in but it is really difficult and there's just some rooms where the crowd for whatever reason i think as you go on and whether ex- expectations people bring to the show if they've seen you before if they know what they're getting into that can allow you to jump into something quicker. Yeah. But there's a bunch of stuff that they about your status that they just decide before you even open your mouth. Right, exactly. And I think also what I've learned now recently, so now I'm host of a night called Two Stories Live, which is a storytelling night where people tell true stories from their own lives but my job within that is not to talk about myself but is to kind of host the night and I, I do within that sometimes talk about myself a little bit but it's you know it's it's kind of a facilitating role and so I because I, I do that quite a lot I've learned quite a lot about um what's useful on stage and what's useful for the room not for me and 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 actually some of that stuff's counterintuitive in a way or maybe it's not maybe it's obvious but I think I used to feel that uh the way to interact with an audience was to kind of try and meet them on their level and try and speak to them directly from the heart and show vulnerability actually i think what that sometimes does is just make them feel uncomfortable and not safe and not like you've got it and i think they an audience primarily needs to feel like you they are giving you their like they're putting you in control and they need to feel like they don't have to look after you and so I think it's a slightly false thing to be like, oh, I'm going to show you my vulnerability. It's like, well, that's always going to be a lie. That's always going to be calculated. And so in some ways, why not Why not just kind of be upfront about the fact that you're, you're the boss in this instance, you know, you're, you're, you have the status and so you're going, and you're going to use that carefully and you're going to give people a, sh- a, a show and an experience and you're not going to kind of shuffle around too much you, you're I'm like now I'm like rather than embracing my awkwardness I'm like I'm gonna try not to be awkward I'm gonna try and I'm gonna I'm not like trying to be super slick but I'm not sort of I think I used to sort of hide behind that awkwardness and be like sorry guys I'm just an awkward dude and it's like what if you try and be less awkward instead that's another way or what if you try and reach out to them and try and be a little more I guess professional which is a, a new thing I'm trying, which I actually am enjoying more than I thought I would. But you must have had, for to, to think that that authenticity, that connection, that something, you must have had moments where you've done that and it's worked. Is that right? Like, am I... Uh, because oh, absolutely. Why is, that, why, why is that feeling of like, I'll just... I'm just going to sort of stage dive and and let them catch me and then we'll be in rapport like where does that come from i think it comes from a genuine desire to connect with people and that's why i find it slightly suspicious when <laughs> like if we've got this genuine desire to connect with people why are we doing that from a stage <laughs> that's not how you connect <laughs> with people so it's this it comes from a place of damage you know i think I, I'm, I'm not saying that with any ju- very judgment on me or on anyone who performs but i do think it comes from a place of damage it comes from a place of you don't you're dis- there's some discomfort there's something going on and i think actually at the moment now i'm feeling more comfortable with just it, it, like being really honest about that relationship and kind of going like if i wanted to connect with you that hard 
I would be doing it in a different way. I'd be in the bar afterwards, but I leave, you know. <laughs> no, I don't. I stay. I sometimes stay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it is funny to like have like house lights on someone, like a, a, like an electronic stick that like magnifies your voice, and then being on stage and being like. Let's get to know each other. Yeah, exactly. Cool <laughs> I can't, bullshit. I can't, I can't physically see you. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are lots of other career routes you could, you could have gone down if you wanted to do that. So I want to ask. I want to. I, I want to get onto TV in just a second. Mm. But since we've kind of gone into true stories, it actually brings up something I'd really, really love if you could talk about because I know so many people um, write, and I think autobiographical work or stuff from one's own life is a really great place to start because you've just you you never don't have ideas you everyone has been alive unless you've <laughs> got severe sort of amnesia or something you've got stuff you can work with yeah and I was wondering partly from your own experience of writing but also well let's start off with the night when you've seen people at true stories telling an anecdote from their lives are there any things that or things that you've observed that make for particularly good stories or moments when someone's talking about their own life yeah I think one of the main things that I enjoy is when people don't get hung up on the chronology I think chronology and fact checking is like our killers in terms of things being engaging you know if someone's like right so what it was we were on a train to Timbuktu no hang on was it Budapest or was it Bukarest? do you know what I mean it doesn't matter I don't care like just put me on the train let's get there so I think it's being direct um but I also think it's like having a kind of thematic take home there has to be a point of the story it has to be a reason why you're telling it and I don't mean that you have to sort of use your story as a way to create a massive metaphor that is going to make people think about their lives and change their lives forever that sometimes does happen but not in not in a not it's not it doesn't have to be too calculated but i think that it has to be a point to it can you because i know exactly what you're talking about and when i've done mm. stuff with classes i find it really hard to articulate what i mean until people talk about stuff and then i go that, that. yeah but so that's why I'm throwing the question to you rather than answering it myself. When you say a point to an anecdote, what does that look like or what does that feel like? Or what's a point if it's not a big metaphor saying like, sometimes we are all strangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's maybe it's about change. It's about the, the person has changed and they've changed because of an experience or because of the way they look at an experience and it can be minute it can be a small change it can be a small shift and it might not be something that they're even that aware of but it's just something like for example um one story told recently was about a woman who had always defined herself by the idea of being a nurse and she was like and for very so she goes into all these reasons and this particularly like big reason why she wanted to be a nurse but then over the course of the story and some like really horrible things happened to her while she was a psychiatric nurse and so eventually in the end the story it ended with her telling us about how she'd it, it just come around like you know with your nursing you, you kind of pay to be part of the nursing community however long and, and she'd kind of got her last chance to do that to renew her nursing badge or whatever <laughs> I don't know I don't know the terminology <laughs> it doesn't matter none of that matters <laughs> so, and, uh, and she hadn't done it and it was this moment and she was like she wasn't a nurse anymore um, and that was okay because of the way that she now takes value in other things about her and sometimes it's important to kind of 
let your values shift and change. And so, you know, that there have been much more sort of, in inverted commas, like exciting stories about people who've like hitchhiked to Bermuda. But but there was it was the fact that she was was talking about that that change. And so obviously you will take something different, hopefully. Um, than lots of other people you know it's not like this one didactic point that we're all going to walk home and say to ourselves but there is something there for you to relate to because you've gone well that character that person has changed and what would I change in that situation and how would I change and would I react the same way to that change or differently that's really that's so good oh Molly I'm gonna stow that in my head so I've got it it is. It's like something has to have changed by the ending of the story. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you got held up at like I remember somebody doing in a class I did where it's like they were held up with like Uzi point by like six armed guards, and there was just something a bit flat about the story. Right. And now exactly. you say it, it's like it happened and then they went away and it didn't change his opinion of the country he was in. It didn't change. He didn't learn anything about himself. Yeah. He didn't doesn't particularly feel any different from it having happened. It's kind of cool and interesting and dramatic. But like in that same group, a guy was doing a story. He just was talking about his relationship with his dad. And he had this particular like memory of going on a boat with it. He'd sort of, he went on a, a, a boat with his dad. They were going to go like dolphin watching or something. And they went out on the boat and it was choppy waters. And at one stage he like had to go downstairs and be sick in like the toilet and he was throwing up and he heard his dad in the next cubicle throwing up and he had him and his dad had been close when he'd been little but then they'd kind of drifted apart and there was this moment he'd kind of gone it was like the kind of their last chance for him to do something with his dad and some other people there and mm. they both started laughing when they he heard that it was his dad throwing up <laughs> and for some reason, that story was more resonant. And it was because we listened to it and were like, oh, it was like this moment of you and your dad reconnected. So something had changed on that trip. They'd had this moment of coming back together and through an odd thing. And it's re I never really knew how to articulate to that guy what, why everyone in the room responded to that story he told in a way that people didn't with like the kind of like you're being held at gunpoint but and, and it's exactly that it's it's change mm. yeah exactly and so that's what so i do workshops with people who want to come and tell a story or think they might and often people say oh i haven't got uh, nothing interesting has happened to me or you know because of the oozy thing they, they weren't held up at gunpoint by the oozy guys <laughs> somebody's called oozy it sounds so weird though Oh, I was thinking about Uzo. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, Uzo sounds weird. Uzo, Uno, Uzis. They're all like it's funny names. Yeah, but yeah. So that's so I've sort of it's been really good and interesting and useful for me having to sort of teach those workshops and devise a work like what might a, a workshop that teaches someone how to tell their own story look like. And so I've kind of picked up on those things that, that do sort of feed into my writing as as well because they're sort of quite basic principles of because you know you go back to sort of oral storytelling in pre-literate societies that's what people did and so it's like well there you know there must be some things that are still true about oral storytelling that still apply to you know writing prose fiction can i ask a bit about 
you writing for TV. I'd really like to ask you a bit about write, you your writing um, after hours because I think it's really interesting and um, and because I actually and this gets gets us back to the point I wanted to like draw you out on, which mm. was like the voice of a sweet might just like prompt your yeah. tone and stuff like. Sweet. Well, yeah, After Hours was a Sky One. It was um, commissioned by, it was on Sky One and commissioned by Craig Cash's production company, Jelly Legs. And I wrote, wrote it with John Osborne, the writer. And it was a show that, uh, it was a kind of comedy. It was a comedy, really. It was a sort of sitcom, but, uh, you know, I, I preferred the term comedy drama because sitcom, I think, has some connotations about around laugh tracks and, you know, static cameras perhaps so it was you a don't kind have of the term dramedy i do not no, i don't <laughs> nobody does <laughs> um it's funny because no one in the industry uses the word the term dramedy it's like but there are some people who i hope they've all been fired for i saying guess they've all been I hope fired. that's the reason they were summarily kicked out for using such an important <laughs> disgusting but um but yeah so we were sort of that we wrote john and i wrote a pilot for fun because we wanted to and we had this sort of very basic premise about uh, a kid who is obsessed with listening to the radio listening to like music and pirate radio station that kind of saves him from his humdrum hometown life and and we wrote a pilot and then and then it got commissioned to a script and then it was on telly but of course like with a million terrible terrible stages in between um and uh and that was yeah that was on uh, i guess a few years ago now and i don't know what what else do you shall i say I, about it yeah i just was i'd just be interested to know because like i really it i think it's fascinating that the kind of like basic premise of about it given what you've been saying about uh, how stories were like an escape for you and that you know that it's very much kind of coming back to those scenes those themes of being in a small town mm. and having this refuge really I, I was so i just i want to ask a little bit about the voice of a show basically because i it seems inadequate to talk about it as being like gentle but i sort of and feel good always makes it sounds too cheesy and kind of gushy but it was because it was a bit it was like smarter and more ironic than that and funnier but it was like ultimately like I would say like the tone of it was like it was basically like a hopeful story in which like human be most human beings might be twats but they're basically good people who yeah. have needs and I was just wondering if you could talk about like because what you couldn't have had in the show is like an episode with like a serial killer in it who's going around like killing people right and I just wonder if we can just it is quite like a fundamental question but like how do you choose like once you've gone okay here's the pilot and then you're making five other episodes mm. or whatever. How do you choose like what is appropriate stories for them and what aren't? Is it like entirely intuitive? And like how do you start to cultivate what like? Because I think also when you were telling me about when it got commissioned and you know, Craig Cash liking it and then other people reading it and enjoying it, a lot of what people seemed to be like responding to was like the heart of the show the voice of the show i think it had a very strong voice and i wonder if you can is that like a process is that just something that happens am i getting it asked backwards or is it something you completely cynically cultivate yeah. from the beginning or no, it's a great question and i think it's a it's 
it's hard because I I teach creative writing a little bit now as well and and I and I I do I do think that on some level you can't cultivate it or, or no I don't think that but I think I think you haven't you have a a voice you have your own kind of natural mode right you you have your range like I was saying earlier like I don't write science fiction and I'm not saying that I couldn't who knows but I don't my natural voice um is or my natural tone for writing things is 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 relatively set and then I think what happens is you 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 can make the decision to write outside of that but it would be very hard but then what happens with screen particularly is that other people so say like you know John and me collaborating that already sort of dilutes my tone a bit or, or, or dilutes maybe the wrong words it sounds pejorative but you know John adds his tone and then you've got a kind of new tone and then Craig Cash likes that and then he adds his tone with his directorial thing so you, what you're creating is 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 a, is a mesh actually of tones and so that is why it's kind of you do start off with an intention or with a kind of natural tone but it kind of the the actual final tone of the show is, is is less in your control than than you than you might than you might like and i think it doesn't necessarily have to be that way i think but i think what i would so how how i've kind of looked at that now moving forward because i there's some elements of that i found quite frustrating and it does didn't quite feel like it was the tone that represented me even though i was very proud of the show um so now I'm I am thinking about in my writing ways that we can dictate the tone a little bit more and what that looks like and I think one way to do that is to is to just think about it more and think about sh- other shows that have the same tone and I think think about what the f- word tone means and I think it means it means a combination of things it means like look it means idiolect it refers to themes it refers to quite a wide range of things and and, I, and like that, that can be a bit baffling but I think once you've kind of really identified what tone you want to work in using other comparisons and other kind of music you know you don't don't necessarily be like I want it to be like Shaun of the Dead be like I want it to feel a bit like the Smiths or feel a bit like do you know what I mean like yeah. you can look outside of it or feel, I want it to feel like a poem I want it to feel like this and but be be sort of broad but also specific um and uh and yeah just try and try and kind of stay as true to that as you can because it gets so diluted that if you don't sort of think about it 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 will immediately kind of disappear or immediately kind of go off in another direction and if you're going if you're if you get like a and i i realize this is the kind of thing that we're talking about that a few years ago i i would have wrongly cringed at because i would be so afraid of like sounding like i was being a lovey by talking about tone but like i've found that i get more screwed over by you're just denying yourself tools to write get the shit done right (laughs) but what i'm really interested in is if you're going for that and i don't know you know what you're working on at the moment but i mean do you do anything to create those kind of like north stars of like because there's so much to go through in so many phases that i can really understand how you get you forget why you were doing it to start with. I mean, do you create like mood boards? Do you make yourself some notes with some keywords? Do you have a soundtrack or a play- playlist that you put on when you're writing? Is there anything that you do to try and anchor those mm. things? Oh, well, lots of comparisons, lots of comparisons. But also when I'm writing, so I do a lot of sort of planning documents, you know, a lot of kind of 
treatments and pictures and one line one page synopsis and things like that is that for you um, or because that's how the industry works it's both it's 100 percent both um i used to think it was like oh i've got to do this in the industry but now i just think it's like the only way i would work and within those early documents i will try and write within the within the tone that the script will be in so if it was comedy i'm trying to make those documents funny and that's almost like my opportunity to practice the tone and then because if you don't do that then no one will know it'll be this secret that only you know and you'll write the tone is the bill crossed between the bill and dino babies and but unless you demonstrate that within the which is really I really created a tosh <laughs> dino baby in my head and I'm just I was trying to I was trying to listen while like I just felt like you just like dosed my tea with LSD. I was like, oh, oh. Yeah, that was quite an intense it was one a to good throw move. in. Um but yeah, so and and that that is important. Like to just go and I say that to students, like, if this is a comedy then your treatment should be funny because otherwise there's no indication that it's a comedy other than you've written it's a comedy. It's like, well, make me laugh then. But it's, but how, okay, so my question, because like I have, I just did like a few episodes ago, I did a uh, pitch rush special where I like got people to give me 100 word treatments of the novel they were working on and then 100 word extracts mm. and got lots and lots in. Um, one thing that, you know when like somebody writes like a funny bio of themselves yeah. and like they go, it goes, Tim Clare is an author who uh, writes novels and uh, for his sins or something like that. And, <laughs> but not and, as much as he likes sandwiches. Yeah, huh? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Love, loves an odd pie sometimes. <laughs> Some say he's a bit of a jack. Like, <laughs> like I, re- I suppose the, the thing is I'm constantly terrified when I've got like this tiny thing that like my fear would always be that I'm like wasting people's times by like farting about. So how do you, this might be too big a question, but how do you make sure that you're doing something like in the voice of the show, in tone or in the voice of the book for like fiction writers without being annoying, like being, yeah, exactly. I don't know but I think you would just have to trust that you're not annoying or basic okay so I think it's it's not doing an impression of yourself like try like what you did as that example about Tim Clare eating pies um (laughs) you wouldn't do that because that's that's kind of in mode so it's like trying really hard to go "Mm, am I writing this because this is what I think is good and funny or because I'm like doing an impression of a comedy writer. Like, do it for yourself is the only answer, really. Just like do something that you like and and don't try and second guess them. Don't try and please them, whoever they are. Like, you can't. So if you enjoy it and if, you, if you're like, this this writing sums up what I'm trying to do and I enjoy it and I, I don't know what else it's like, who cares? Then I think it'll be good. Because you're not, I think, I think the reason that's, such good advice is because you're not you're emphatically not trying to trick them into signing up for something that they don't realize what they're getting into and then they realize later on in the commissioning process oh i actually have got no passion for this project whatsoever i I think stuff like this is shit exactly so you need to be aggressively you because you only want them to sign up if they're signing up for you and that might mean that you get a few less commissions, but it also means that the people who who commission you 
will love you and you're not you won't have imposter syndrome because they are they are paying you to be you um and you exactly you're not trying to trick them and i've only just learned that and i'm 36 now <laughs> i i like when i was get sort of various several sort of agents were coming to me when i did, was doing my novel and some of them were like from a genre background like fantasy or science fiction background and they basically those people basically didn't like my book but saw that I could sort of write and so I got invited to a couple of meetings where they were like yeah I mean it's a bit you know it takes a while to I mean it takes a while to get started doesn't it but and I was trying to go on I could I was like I was con I was like being like please stay yeah. I'll say the opposite if you stay yeah. and like really and then just you know my current agent who just said I think there's some ways that you I think there's work to do but I really love what you're trying to do here and it's not like those other people were wrong and she was right but they were wrong for me yeah. and it's it's just futile to kind of go cap in hand to people and try and win them over because they're going to be no good for you unless they're like oh my fucking god exactly and i think this is the thing that is so hard for people to take on board because the industry exploits insecurity and it's there's this idea of scarcity isn't there there's the scarcity myth that like well that's if someone gets a commission that's one less commission for me like we're all terrified it is a very competitive industry i, f I feel it's that a lot it's really nice that you mentioned that molly because I, I think i've had a bit of that in the last couple of weeks has been kind of creeping into my head and we all do i think and it's really it's awful because it's 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 just it's a dreadful old business in that respect because you just it's that pain and i just and i think what's and that's fine it's competitive lots of people want to do this right but i think what's a shame about that is the way that it's exploited in the industry the way they get can get away with treating you badly they can get away with never emailing you back they can get away with keeping your manuscript for a year because it doesn't matter to them actually like there's no sense of like because they're Ooh. on a fucking salary. Because they're on a salary and they've got a slush pile like as big as their office and they've got like shit munches to read. And often they're upper they're, middle class as and well and actually come from kind of like... 100%. <laughs> and it's just... So it's, uh, it's very hard not to become embittered about that when you... Well, for all of us, you know, for all these different reasons. So I think it's just important to remember that like it's not about you it's not personal if someone doesn't like your work they are not right they're not wrong they're not an arsehole but like they're not right i mean they're not right for you exactly yeah. like you said so can i ask you about a couple of ways that you found that you've like connected with that because i i know like you you've said you know that there's things that you're sort of insecure about but i've always really really looked up to you as someone who like you just seem to have like a really You've always struck me. Maybe you're going to say that you've just you, you've fooled me, but like you've always come across as having like a really um, practical, pragmatic attitude to your work. Not in like a soulless way, but you've always just seemed like you just fucking get on with stuff, and you're not too like neurotic about churning over it. And I was just wondering if you could talk about. But I, I, I get the sense from talking to you that some of that has been some of those insights have been hard won, and mm. I was wondering if there was some stuff you could talk about about ways you found to like connect with that if not if positivity is too sugary then at least like how do i go forward from this how do yeah. i reclaim some sense of 
control or agency in these situations when you're trying to do creative stuff that on one stage on one level is you getting up on stage and going you know whether it's tv or whatever you're going up and going here's my heart um and on another level is like here's a project that i want to work with with yeah. fellow professionals who are going to give a shit and aren't going to be lazy and go and get pissed and get off with each other <laughs> hashtag rhinoceros um yeah i think i just have always tried to lower the stakes with every project i'm on so and i don't know if this is good advice i'm not i'm not giving it as advice at all because i don't know if it's the right thing to do but for my own happiness i've tried to lower the stakes so what i mean by that is so say i've got a film script that i'm writing and i'm obsessed with and i love and i really want to get made into a film do you um uh yes like well i've just finished one but so that project was like about two years took two years to write this script and got funding and whatever but you know there's now no guarantee that it'll ever get made so that process for an example you know good because i guess paid some money to write it not loads but like you know some but whilst doing that right whilst writing that script I also wrote a bunch of other stuff and I had lots of projects on the go and the reason like it it would have been probably a lot more sensible when I got that script commission to not do anything else and to kind of put everything else on hold and throw myself into this script I didn't do that and partly was fear just a kind of about future income and things like that but also was I think a bit of me is like I don't I don't want this to be my everything because I have to I have to accept that it might not get made I suppose probably more likely that it won't get made than it will because that is just the way with film and tv so I and that has to be okay like that has to feel okay and to make it feel okay I will continue doing other projects and I will make sure that there are other projects in my life that are not gatekeeper reliant so I think making a podcast is brilliant I don't do one but like I've often thought of it because no one can stop you making your podcast Um, I do true stories live which you know I don't do for money I do for love and it's a way to be useful in my community so it's just making sure that the other things in your there are other things in your life and that they can also be relationships and children and hobbies that have greater meaning than a script so it's about keeping it in perspective and kind of going this would be lovely if this film got made and I would be delighted but it doesn't make me a shitty person if it doesn't and it doesn't make me an amazing person if it does it's just like one of the many things that I'm doing I think the downside to that way of working is that I do think sometimes I do too much I have too much going on and I I like I hate to accept that this might be true but I might have written a better script you know if I wasn't doing five other things who knows I'm not gonna find out you can't a, you can't a b test no your life what so you how do you think you got to, I just want to ask, because I found it used to find that, what you're talking about, people, I found it so difficult because there was part of me that whether it was just something I'd acquired without really critiquing it at a young age and then that you need this like fire and you've got to be burning with ambition and you you, you need to take the project and go, this is the one and you're like, like it's like like raising the flag at Iwo Jima or like sharp like charging through like the breach and kind of like fortifications you know like it's this thing that you have to take the thing and go like ah and like run with it because if you don't I suppose it's like slightly 
like magical thinking but like if you don't say i need this in my heart you won't you won't get it and and i'm like you know create narratives out of i'm going to write this and then this is going to happen and this is going to happen how do you think you've got from that i'm, I'm projecting it onto you no i definitely had that i definitely had what you're talking about to going i can do these different things and i don't know which of them is going to catch fire yeah if any um i now just look at it differently so what i used to do is i used to make a list of things i wanted to achieve right um i'd maybe make one at the beginning of the year or in september i'd kind of go things i want to achieve this year or it may be in five years you know lots of lists all the time achieve 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 now my list I don't really have a list, but if I did have a list, it would look different. It would be how I want to spend that year, how I want to spend that time. It's like a subtle difference, but it's about process. It's like, am I going to enjoy doing this? So like, what am I going to enjoy? Am I going to enjoy? So now, so it's, so some of my projects are sort of wrapping up and I will be thinking about next year and what my next project's going to be, but I'm not going to be thinking about it in terms of achievement. I'm going to be thinking about it in terms of what will I enjoy six months doing and that you know i don't know what that will be but I, you've got to enjoy it because otherwise like what the fuck are we doing because it's our lives because right? it's our lives it's our sweet sweet lives and like even if you know like winning a bafta or the costa or whatever like you'll be happy you'll be really happy on that day and you'll be really happy like maybe the day after day after that you're like you still remember it and you're like oh yeah i won the costa Day after that, like maybe you think about it once. Day after that, you're already annoyed because something else has happened. Because you and went you're on aging. Twitter and read someone being a twat exactly. about your BAFTA win. So four days max. And like, it's not worth it. <laughs> Until I'd be like in like a pillow fort angrily like arguing with people <laughs> right. on the like like policing threads about my own shit and then those threads would die and i go they're not even slagging not me off anymore <laughs> so like yeah so basically so it sort of doesn't matter like what matters is that year you spent up to winning your bafta like were you happy were, were you content was the with the days all right like did you have enough sleep did you haven't spent enough time with your kid do you like have some really nice food like that's what matters isn't it? And I know this is beginning to sound a bit trite. Like, it doesn't matter if we don't win a BAFTA. Like, try and win a BAFTA, by all means. But just, like, be happy while you're trying. Like, being happy is not going to decrease your... That's the key thing is, being happy... Being miserable is not going to increase your chances of winning a BAFTA. And being happy is not going to, like... Your enjoyment of your writing process is not going to get back to the board. And they're going to go, like, like <laughs> sadly, like, strike a kind of, like, pen through your name and go <laughs> didn't want it enough not enough pain didn't yeah. want it enough like, like no fuck we, that we've all like uh, i assume you've like avoided doing writing because you're you're fucking hating it and you feel guilt and shame with turning up to do it yeah and number you write one, more when you're enjoying it exactly number one like procrastinator is like self-flagellation and self-hatred and because then i'll just be like well i'll I won't do this. I'll go and get drunk or do something weird because I hate myself. Whereas actually just like get up at eight and do a bit of writing in it and then go for a walk. Lovely. Get a donut. <laughs> <laughs> the artist within. <laughs> yeah. no, but I really, like, I re it's been so, I really enjoyed talking to you, Molly. And I feel like I feel like I've learned so much from like how you've kind of broken some of this stuff down. And 
it's just really nice to be able to talk about it and and I I just want to say I'm really proud of you for being able to talk about it without like I feel like five years ago if we'd had this talk we wouldn't have been able to stop ourselves constantly coming in to like make meta jokes about what twats we were for talking about mm. it and I don't think we've done that very much at all I don't we? think we've done it at all and like maybe people would be listening going cool well, they're a bit more self-aware yeah <laughs> I wish, I wish they'd been saying, well, we're right pricks for caring about our jobs. <laughs> but they wanted to do them all right and not have massive breakdowns while doing them. But I just think it's Lame really... Lame dweebs. But I think actually that constant like meta-narrative is more self-indulgent than just going, hey, this is my job. It's no better, yeah. no worse than any other job. But like, here's what I've found that works. I find now, like when people do that, I'm just like, stop wasting my time. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to have to play the game of like, yeah, we're all pricks and it's all annoying. And like, like yes, it, now let's get to the juice. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people want to um, find your work online or indeed uh, you online, um, how can they, um, if they want to sort of, Read because because you've got poetry. Is your is is badminton still available? If yeah, so I've got a poetry book published by Burning Eye, brilliant indie press, and that is called Badminton, and you can buy that. Basically. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, that. I don't rush. know why I was make. I always do. I always say I'll put a link in the show notes, and I do a pointy down finger like I'm a fucking YouTube broadcaster. Every time <laughs> I point down oh, below the video, was? and oh, it's like, why do I do that? No one, no one can see me, and there is no video. No, but anyway, do it, that. I'll put it in the show notes. Thank you, and then everything else just on my website, mollynaylor.com, and I have Twitter. I will, Molly put, I will put links to all of those things but thank you ever so much for your time Molly it's been an absolute wonder to talk hey, to you hey thanks for having me you're most welcome and everybody listening um, if you want to support the show then there are several ways you can do that but the best one you could do of course would be to um, uh, check out something that Molly's done and uh and pick it up you can also click one of the links uh, i've got links to my novel the honors um and pre-order for the ice house and there's the little coffee link that you can um click if you'd like to support the show have a wonderful writing week and i will see you soon